another episode of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nitin. What's good, Nitin? What's good indeed, man? We're in three games into a very exciting NBA Finals for me. I, I, I don't know that I would call it good necessarily, but it's had the right amount of ebbs and flows and you know different points in time. It seems like different team is going to run away with things, but... Here we stand after three games. Boston is up 2-1 after a pivotal Game 3 win last night. They play again at home on Friday before the series switches back to San Francisco uh, next week. So let's start at the highest level. How is What is your enjoyment level, really, with this series? Because that's what this is all about. So what two teams you don't particularly like, one that you truly hate. So what's your enjoyment level been thus far, um, and, and what do you expect for the rest of the series? I'm really enjoying the series. I think... You just have to readjust your expectations. We're never going to get wire-to-wire games anymore. The playoffs have taught me that. Every game is going to somehow, even if it's close at one point, it's going to end up in a 10-plus point advantage. We should be betting this. Like, anytime the spread is, you know, whatever number that spread is, go the mm-hmm. other way, um, you know, and go with the favorite. So, I. but overall, what I'm liking is Boston, as good as they've been, is an imperfect team. And they've shown vulnerability. And the Warriors, as you know, this iteration is not as talented as before, granted. But they also still have the firepower and those third quarter runs. We've always talked about the third quarter Warriors for several years now. Yeah. And they still have that in them. So because of that, this does feel like a matchup that, you know, even though Boston's up 2-1, would you be surprised if Golden State takes game four? No. And Absolutely then we're, we're 2-2. Yeah. And then like it, it's a toss-up once again, right? So I think... After every game, it feels like one team has the advantage. But in reality, this is a pretty evenly matched series. So you can't ask for more than that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the third quarter Warriors. That's been a staple of the entire dynasty thus far. And of course, it was a lot easier when you had Prime Clay, KD, you know, and even younger MVP Steph doing, you know, all the damage. But the fact that that's happening now from a totally different version of this team is pretty amazing because really Steph is the one guy who can be counted on from a possession-to-possession basis as a consistent offensive player. Last night was really interesting to me because I was very curious to see what that third quarter would yield. The first two games, uh, I think game one, Boston was up two at the half, and then game two, the Warriors were up two at the half. Game three was the first time we actually saw a sizable lead. Uh, Boston was up 12. And they looked pretty dominant um, and even withstood a little bit of a run there by the Warriors to get that down to, I think, six in the second quarter before they pushed it back up to 12. So I said, OK, look, they're clearly the better team today. Their physicality, their athleticism, their size is finally taking shape. Is this the game that they're able to stop that third quarter run because they already have this in the bag? And it looked that way. The first three or four minutes, Steph pick up, picks up his fourth foul, you know, the Game is still 11, 12, 10 points, and then you had that seven-point possession, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God. Steph hits a three, they go up one, and I was like, the Warriors are going to win this. Like, I can't believe this. Like, how did the Boston Celtics blow this game? And to their credit, this is a resilient bunch. You put it perfectly. They are an imperfect team. They have a ton of flaws. It's going to be, in a weird way, one of the worst kind of, like, champions even though as good as boston has been and as good as golden state's win whoever wins this is gonna be looked at as like one of the most flawed i shouldn't say worse one of the most flawed title teams we've had in in some time when you think about 
the Warriors, the LeBron Cavs, LeBron Heat, the Duncan Spurs, the Kawhi Raptors, Giannis Bucks. Like they all had like this sort of wire to wire pedigree that we're not seeing with these teams. Yet one of them is going to be the champion at the end of the day. Absolutely. What I think I do like, though, is the fact that the Warriors are mainly an offensive team. Um, and yet they have another gear defensively, which they showed in game two. And Boston is primarily a defensive team, but they have that gear offensively where everything's clicking, the ball is zipping around, they're hitting threes. So both these teams are capable of playing very good offensive and defensive games. I don't think you could say that about all teams that we've seen in the finals over the That's years. True. Um, like the you Cavs, just, for example. It doesn't happen at the same time. You have no idea when they're going to happen. Exactly. It's kind of, you never know when's, what's going to happen when. Um, I mean, Golden State offensively has looked horrid some of these games. And you're like, what do they have by beyond Steph? Because can't count on Clay, can't count on Poole. And at the same time, Boston defensively sometimes is in disarray. Like even in game three in the third quarter, they started dropping against a lot of those three pointers again. And some of the same mistakes and the discipline kind of starts to uh, falter a bit. So both teams, because they're imperfect, but also because they're able to, to turn their offense and defense up to levels that can win them games in the finals. That's what makes this series so fascinating. Yeah, it's a really good point. Like they both have certain floors because the one side of the ball is very, very effective, but then the inconsistently inconsistency we see on the other side of the ball predominantly um, really makes this one of the most fascinating series because like you look at a game like last night, right? Like, First half, Boston was firing on all cylinders. Jalen Brown was hitting amazing shots. Like, they were cutting. They were getting open dunks, like Al Horford, Rob Williams. You know, defensively, they were all over the place. They weren't turning the ball over, so that was their one big Achilles heel. And then the second half starts, and it's like they just completely forget how to do any (laughs) of those things. It's like they can't generate one good look. Jason Tatum, alleged top 10 player, has his third straight kind of like meh game in a row. And you're sitting here being like, dude, you're the best defensive team in the league, yet you continually drop on Steph Curry three-pointers. Like, what's going on right now, right? Like, how are you playing the pick-and-roll like this against the greatest shooter of all time and the only, uh, like you said, the only player who's playing well offensively for for Golden State consistently? And so that's the piece of this that I really um, think is fascinating. And it's been very, very entertaining. Like, put all the fan base stuff aside and all the, you know, whatever, like the storylines, et cetera. Like just the basketball has been exciting because it's almost as if you get two really good college teams who have obvious flaws, but who are clearly extremely talented. And so when it's good, it's really good. When it's not good, it's almost like laughable in a way college is laughable. And so I'm not trying to like, these teams are playing for the freaking NBA championship. I'm not trying to like denigrate them, but at the same time, it is uniquely interesting and uniquely fun because of just the unknown that both teams present. That's actually a good way to describe it because it does feel like watching college teams sometimes, especially the Celtics. When the, the especially ball, watching them dribble, the dribble just, exactly, <laughs> but they just can't like keep control of the ball. Um, it feels like that. So, um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go go ahead. I was just going to say, I wanted to talk uh, some of the tactics that, that have got, have gone on. Um, so, you know, I think one of the big adjustments that Boston, that Golden State made in game two was that they put Draymond on uh, Jalen Brown. And he struggled, right? He went 5-17. to 17, But then he comes back and he has a big game in, in game three, especially in the first half. So I guess one of the things that jumped out to me is, 
Golden State is finally getting punished for the two things that forever uh, frustrated me that teams weren't able to exploit. One was their lack of size, right? Because their small ball lineup has Draymond as a center. And unlike previous death lineups, they don't have these like apex predator wings like Iguodala, Harrison Barnes, Kevin Durant, like prime two-way wings, right? And I'm sorry that I just put Harrison Barnes and Kevin Durant (laughs) in the same sentence, but they don't have that in this instance. So I was like, why is this not getting exposed more? And then the second thing is, despite how great of a shooter Steph still is, the fact that Clay and Wiggins were inconsistent and that Looney and Draymond were complete non-entities, how is a team with basically one and a half good shooters on the court in 2022 not, you know, getting eviscerated from that standpoint? And I feel like those two things, Boston is slowly able to unlock. Like Looney has not played much in this series despite the fact that he's been really good because they just can't play him with Draymond, right? And you know, Looney's only averaged 21 minutes a game because Draymond's at 36 and they recognize it's just not going to work. And so what do you what do you make of that? Like, I think these two big weaknesses for the Warriors, I think uh, Boston has start, stored, started to figure out, uh, you know, the solution there. This is what the series is about. This It's about the fact that Boston has a ton of chess pieces that they can move in many different ways. And in this last game, you know, Robert Williams got more playing time. Uh, Derek White d- didn't even really play the fourth quarter at all. They ran a lineup with Smart and Grant Williams. And there are a lot of different lineups they're able to run. Golden State has tried a lot of different lineups. But what they're quickly realizing is that, like you said, they don't have – their biggest problem is they don't have enough shooting threats on the floor at once. And the moment that, you know, Kerr put in Bielitsa for a little bit in this game and the game before, I don't know if he can rely on that either. That gives him a scoring punch. But defensively – No, he got toasted know, last night. Yeah. He got toasted. Um, and you, they want to play Gary Payton, but he's kind of a limited offensive threat. Uh, so if you're playing Payton and you're playing Draymond and then you have Wiggins, who's Wiggins is good, but he's also not like a sharpshooter. Yeah. It, your spacing already has problems. So, so Golden State has fewer kind of things that they can react with. Whereas I think Boston can continue to tinker with lineups based on what, what Golden and they're getting more comfortable with what works against Golden State. And, you know, the one thing about the Draymond matchup on Brown that worked well game two, but then because Draymond's normally their rim protector in that first quarter, Jalen Brown brings him out, right? And then he takes him one-on-one down to the rim. Help defense has to come from somewhere else. He can kick it out after he drives, kick it out to an open shooter. Whereas before, you know, you have Draymond playing that safety role and he's the help defender that comes in, disrupts the play. Uh, but now when he's playing one-on-one on the perimeter, you lose that that piece defensively. And it also becomes harder for him to have an impact rebounding, which killed them in game three. So you're it's absolutely spot on when you say like these these matchups and decisions, Boston just has so many more things they can do. And we're starting to see that as the series goes along. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Because like Draymond's strength is not necessarily lockdown perimeter defense. Yes, he can do it, Right. Like, yes, that's one of the many great things he does on defense, but his strength is really being like the center fielder, the free safety, whatever analogy you want to use, and having the eyes all over the court and being able to come back and rim protect, being able to switch off his man to to sort of close out a drive, being able to box out and grab rebounds. When he's 25 feet from the basket looking at uh, Jalen Brown, he's not able to do those things quick enough. Um, And then what happens is when they run pick and rolls to get Jalen Brown on Steph Curry, which is what happens, 
he's having to double hedge come back and it's just hard for him to recover and then you're starting to play four on three right because they can't let Steph alone on an island I thought they really picked on Steph last night oh yeah especially when he got those those three fouls in the first half the early one in the third to get the fourth they went at him relentlessly right Al Horford, Derek White, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, like whatever, whoever could get on him, they took it to him, right? And they've they've been very, very hesitant to play the pool party lineup because they know that Boston wings, we talked about this in the preview, remember? It's like, can they play this lineup against a team that's notorious at, you know, making you pay with small guards? We saw it all playoffs long. And Jordan Poole's been very ineffective because I just don't think he's figured out how to stay on the court, right, with with Steph Curry. And so that that's the thing. Like, the chess piece common is what makes Boston so dangerous because aside from, like, a acute lack of ball handling, they pretty much have no other weakness. Um, and I would say that the ball handling or lack thereof is what leads to some type of, like, half-court offense, uh, you know, stagnation. I'm kind of lumping that in. They, of course, have that problem, but I think a large part of it is because they don't have anyone to set things up. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now you have to like them in this series when you just think, forget the the 2 1. Yeah, of course, that matters, home court, whatever. But like, it just feels like they have more ways to win than Golden State does, which is pretty much relying on like Herculean efforts night after night from Steph. And this was the game they got that from Steph to some extent, right? Over 30 points and Clay. And I mean, Clay. 56 we, combined. We've been waiting for both of them to get on the same page. They did. They still lost. And it's it's how likely are you going to get that, those two plus Wiggins plus a fourth guy like Otto Porter to give you 12, 14 points. Like, it's just hard. Like, they're struggling to score uh, overall. I mean, you look at, the, I think you mentioned in our thread, right? The point totals. They're like 108, 107, 100. Like they're not. Yeah. Even in the game they won, they I mean, obviously in the fourth quarter they rested. But this is not a team that's capable of going nuclear. They're not going to drop yeah, 125 on you, um, especially, especially against, against this defense. defense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think Derek White has low key been one of the most important players here because he is really giving. I mean, look, you're not slowing down Steph. He's averaging 31 a game. Like he's been awesome. Um, to his credit, he's just been phenomenal. Like. The shit he was doing yesterday, dude, was like, <laughs> it was scary. That looked like 2016 Steph, frankly, where there's like, guys, he's the only player. Can you do anything? And it's like, nope, nobody can do anything. Like, he's just going to get around. And he's so much stronger now. You can tell, right? Like, even on his step backs, he's able to, like, generate more force away from the defender because he's just put his shoulder into you, and it feels a little different than it did a couple years ago. So, all that to be said, I think Derek White's played a really big role where he has allowed them to go small without the Al Horford and uh, Robert Williams bigs. Like he's allowed them to go small without sacrificing defense and rebounding. Like they're still able to play as a cohesive unit. And he's dude, he's hitting forty, you know, forty seven percent of his threes in this series. So he he's been uh, able to stay on the floor on offense and not just be left wide open. I think that's really crucial. You marked him as your uh, X factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe before we started the series and, it, and it's been true. Like he's played a role that has not allowed golden state to make him pay up for being on the court offensively. And I'm actually surprised at the defense. I mean, I know he's a solid defender, but he's been more smart. Actually played very well against Curry in game three. Yeah, Derek White, the numbers don't bear out yeah. him as doing as well, but 
I think White has been more disciplined in general and better at fighting over the screens. And Smart has had some lapses. Uh, so, yeah, like I, I think the fact that they have both of those guys, you have that flexibility. And the fact that White is at least shooting at a decent clip that you have to respect that shot, yeah. it changes everything for them. Um, and on the flip side, your X-Factor pool, he really is the X-Factor for the Warriors because without yeah. him, they are struggling to find that third scorer or someone who can, you know, give them that that boost. In game two, right when he hit a couple big shots, the game was already kind of slipping out of hand, but that gives that team a whole different energy when he's making shots as well. And they haven't had that consistently at all this series. And the way he's playing on defense, it's hard for Kerr to even give him big minutes. It's become a problem. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where he kind of suffers some of the fate that Looney suffers, where he could probably play a little bit more. But with the guys that are guaranteed to play a lot, that matchup doesn't work, right? Or that combination doesn't work. Now, Looney could play more, but that means less minutes for Draymond. Well, we can argue that may be a good thing, right, with the way Draymond's played in some of these games. And Poole could play more, but that probably means fewer minutes for Steph, and that's just an absolute, you know, non-starter, right? Like, um, both of them out there, This we're a long way from the Nugget series. Remember, remember the Nugget series where they were just going to town? I think Poole had, like, 30 or 35 in one game, and, like, it was just party up. It was party. so it's easy. Like, Monty Morris was clueless. Austin Rivers helpless. You know, Fernando Compazzo or Facundo Compazzo was just out there on an island. Like, we are a long, long way from that series. That feels like that was three seasons ago. Um, now you have big, big guards. You have the de- defensive player of the year. Um, it's a different look. And, and I would say, to the Warriors' credit, they have been – they were up big in game one and probably are killing themselves for losing that game, right? Uh they were up big and obviously won big in game two. And then in game three, even though they were down big, they made a pretty impressive run to, to go as far as to take the lead. And so you're probably looking at it if you're the Warriors and Steve, Steve Kerr, and you're like, I don't think we're the better team, but we absolutely could and should win this series, right? Like you're yeah. just thinking that like in that light. And, you know, it's a long series. I expect this one to keep going, and I, I know there'll be adjustments. So I, I, I just – Steph has to continue being great. He's the best player in the series. That much is clear, right? We can shut the Jason Tatum top five talks down because he's not better than <laughs> Steph Curry based on yeah. what I'm seeing. Um, let's talk about Tatum. We're, he, you know, he's had some really nice uh, playmaking games. He had 13 assists in game one. Last night, I thought he read the floor well. He's also shooting 34% from the field um, as the guy that's supposed to be the best player on the team and a first-team All-NBA. So what's your takeaway been thus far with what we've seen from Tatum really since, you know, kind of part halfway through that Miami series? That's the last time he kind of turned it on. I've been disappointed. Now, I think he's playing a good, for the most part, a good brand of basketball. The passing, the passing is amazing. Like that one cross-court pass uh, that he had yesterday that they, they showed so, the replay of a couple times, the one-handed. Was that the one to Peyton Pritchard? It's, I think to Pritchard, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that, was really, that was really nice, like, yeah. And just the, the level of difficulty on his pass is amazing. He's getting to the rim. He's aggressive, right? So even though he is shooting a lot of threes and settling sometimes, he's still trying to draw that contact, get to the rim, holds the shoulder, will ask for the foul, fine, but, you know, the thing, though, that disappoints me is if you're going to be a top five, top ten guy, you can't go through these stretches where you just don't score 
at all. Like the the problem with Boston is they give up these huge runs, and a guy like Tatum is the kind of guy who should kill those runs with a basket here and there or getting to the foul line. Exactly. And I haven't yep. seen him kill the momentum on any of these these runs and his skill set, he's like people talk about him the way they talk about Durant sometimes, right? He's long, he can get to the rim, he can shoot from outside. He absolutely should be doing that. And I just haven't seen that from him that like stopping a the other team in its tracks, taking over a game. I know it sounds cliche, but that's what you expect from the top five, top 10 guys. Well, it's funny because the guys in my head that I'm thinking about wouldn't let that happen are all the dudes that Tatum sent home thus far in the playoffs, right? <laughs> like yeah. a Durant, a Giannis, a Jimmy Butler, and obviously there's a number of players in the West. But that was Boston as a collective. That was them being the best team out there, of which he is certainly their best player, but when I watch him, his ascent has been awesome, like from where he was as a rookie, which is still very, very good. But to be able to kind of keep that efficiency with much, much more increased volume on the whole, the thing that I, and I think he's made big strides in his game defensively as a playmaker, like you talked, touched about, even rebounding. But he's got to be more of a go-to scorer on offense. And that's not like, hey, you look up, like last night he had 26 points, right? That was not the 26 that, was came when they needed him. And I think that's a big difference, right? Because ultimately he's going to get his points because he takes a lot of shots um, and he's a good outside shooter. So he's going to hit a bunch of threes. But like you said, they are, they were what up, up 12 at the half mm-hmm. gets down to nine, that crazy seven point play. Like there's just too many instances where it's like, guys, like we need a bucket. You can't just like get the ball at the elbow mid post and do some ridiculously difficult fadeaway, and then just kind of like mosey back down the court. Like it's got to be something going towards the basket. There has to be something that, you know, use your size, use your skill, figure out a way to get to the line, like all these things. And it's happened a lot. Like he's had a lot of clunkers in the playoffs for a guy who very well might win the title and potentially could win finals MVP, depending on how they want to grade it. And that, I think that's fascinating because you know, for me, like three games in finals MVP is premature. I would, of course, pick Jalen Brown at this Same. point. Same. But, you know, there could be three, four more games in this series. Tatum could easily turn it around. And we're sitting here being like, what's going on with this guy right now halfway through the series? So that's the, that's the like, the enigma of Jason Tatum. Well, Jimmy Butler, I think, is a great player you brought up because Jimmy Butler is not as talented as Tatum offensively at all. I mm-hmm. think we'd all agree with that. Um, right. And yet, Jimmy Butler, what he's what he did in that series, right? Like when there's no other offensive option on Miami and keeping them in it possession after possession, that's kind of what I expect from Tatum. And I don't think it's unfair because we're already talking about him as a top tier guy. Now he was first team all NBA. Was he first team all NBA? He was, he was right. So like, this is, this isn't like, you know, just, Oh, young Jason Tatum, all-star great. This is first team all NBA Jason Tatum. And so I, I think it's fair to be critical. And you know, even like Jalen Brown sometimes I think has had been more of a driving force, like in the beginning of games, also in the uh, game one, he was before Al Horford started hitting all his threes, Jalen Brown yeah, had a one. big scoring stretch and got them back in. And I want Tatum to be that guy. And like you said, his points don't come in those moments. It feels like, and, and, and maybe it's unfair to criticize that, but I feel like he needs to have some of those more impactful buckets when things get tough. 
Yeah, I, I I think that's right. And I think Jalen Brown, like Jalen Brown wasn't an all-star this year. He was an all-star last year. This year, he may have had the stats, but the team was so like mediocre at the time of the all-star break. It'll be very interesting when you think about like he's kind of, you know, close to being due for his next contract. They thought about breaking this duo up. Obviously, we're well past that, but I'm always fascinated to see when guys are making the leap. I don't know if this is a leap or if he's just kind of like the best player on a group of team that mostly plays like sort of one guy pops on different days. But I'm curious about his progression because I think people forget he was the number three pick in the 2016 draft. Like it was Ben Simmons. It was a reach back then. It was was a reach. People clowned him. They're like, this guy can't shoot. He can't dribble. He's like a three and D guy. And he played at Cal. (laughs) Yeah. He played at Cal for a year and was, you know, thought to be too smart for his own good, all those kinds of things. And then you look at him, it's like, holy shit, this like dude's only 25. He's developed a great deal. He's played in four conference finals, including this season, finally got to the finals. And now he could be on the doorstep of a finals MVP. It's like, whoa, we need to like almost recalibrate our expectations for him. Or, you know, is he a really good guy, player, kind of second, third tier star that's just having a nice turn in this playoff run. So I think that's interesting because when he's on, it looks really special and he's hard to guard. Even Draymond couldn't guard him. But then he'll have these quarters, games, you know, stretches where he's just like can't hit anything, can't dribble, can't do – it's like it's really bizarre to watch the Jalen Brown experience. But it's been fun, and I'm, I'm happy for him that he's obviously shaken the, the, the tag of being a reach. Yeah, and – He's also madly inconsistent, but obviously the expectations of him are totally different than than Tatum. And for yeah. him, it's just, man, the dribbling. Sometimes, I think it's a mental thing because it always happens in bunches. Like once he starts turning it over a little bit, he starts making multiple mistakes possession after possession. But when he has a control of the game, he's making the right passes, making the right decisions. It's it's crazy to watch. So I'm sure it's mental because think about it like anything, right? Like you have muscle memory to some extent, but you start thinking about it like, Oh, someone's poking me here. Someone's coming there. And suddenly you're just like, it's, it's a looser handle. Um, Rob Williams. I thought Rob Williams was awesome last night. Can you explain to me how this dude came back in round one? So this has now been four rounds where he's like still hurt, but then healthy half the time, but then hurt half the time. I'm very confused by the Rob Williams journey. I don't know. I I, I never heard anything about it because all I heard about was Gary Payton uh, and his journey <laughs> back for the last, I don't know how many months. No, Rob, Rob Williams, he's... Uh, He's just lumbering down the court, man. But his timing, his shot blocking, like I knew he was a good shot blocker. But now watching the Celtics just day in and day out, the sh- the timing of his blocks is just impeccable. Mm-hmm. Because he's not getting crazy lift off the ground. You can tell that he's nursing that knee a little bit. It's yeah. pure timing, smart decisions. And he had a couple steals. Like He's actually intercepting some of these passes and then kicking off the fast break. I thought he was huge for them and, and Horford defensively has been a little you know up and down it's the a, series it's a tough series for Horford it's tough for him so Robert Williams has has held his own too and even some of the plays where they get him on the switch against Steph you know lunges out just enough to kind of disrupt it a bit um yeah I've, I've been super impressed but the shot blocking just the timing is that's an art I mean, he's been a major revelation to me in the playoffs. Like, I I wondered what a guy who I wasn't sure was he a regular season player 
what was he going to do on offense? Like, what was his role? Is this just like a rim runner, like Clint Capella kind of guy? And he's been a very key anchor for that defense. And a lot of times when you can point to the games where they lose is the ones he doesn't look good, whether that's the knee or he just doesn't play well. But a lot of their defense is predicated on his activity because Horford's kind of that more stabilizing presence. And, and Williams is the guy that's flying around making crazy athletic plays. They don't give up a lot of weak side rebounds because they still have Horford. They have Tatum down there. But I think like last night he had four blocks. I thought all of them were very like important blocks, like the timing of them, the like stature of those blocks were like really, really key, um, even from a momentum standpoint. And I'm wondering, like, I don't know what they can do, but now he only has one day rest, right? Because they're playing on Friday. What's he going to look like? Like he could easily look like he did in game two where he couldn't even move and they can't really play him that much. And I just, it must be so hard because he's going, he's given it his all. Like earlier in the playoffs, remember he was sitting out games. Yep. Like he was sitting mm-hmm. out two games and coming back and come back and then sit out really, really bizarre. And now at least he's playing every night, but what his health is like, it fluctuates day to day. And it's not like a usually injuries. Like you consistently get back to hundred. This one's all over the map. Yeah, and I and Golden State, they know this. They're going to – this is how, what always happens when a team loses. They come back with a newfound energy, and I think they're going to play Rob Williams off the court for a good amount of the game, um, at least for game four. So I definitely don't know if his impact is going to be the same, but yeah, the fact that he can even stay on the floor and provide that impact while giving them essentially zero offense, I think already shows just how successful he's been. Well, and I think Grant Williams is another guy who played well yesterday, yeah. but it struggled the first two games, right? So he's another dude that came up big. And this is what the role players play better at home. Usually that's applied to shooters. In this instance, it was applied to like more defenders and bruisers. But they feed off the energy, and that crowd was ridiculous last night, right? Like they were yeah. hammered, like late, late <laughs> East Coast start. Like that thing was crazy. And so I think they fed off of that. And like the whole Draymond thing kind of fueled the fire, right? Especially because he was picking up fouls left and right, John and everybody. Um, we need to talk about Draymond. Draymond. Yeah, yeah. What, what, I, I know you have some thoughts, so why don't you start us off on the, the entirety of the Draymond experience? I, first of all, I want to go back to Game 2. I know Game 2 was a while ago. Um, I cannot believe he can get away with all this bullshit. <laughs> like I, I, and I know it was talked about ad nauseum, but this is, this is ridiculous, man. This is a, a pattern of behavior that's been going on for so long, and he's got a playbook. He gets under your skin. He gets that first technical. He knows you're not going to call the second technical. Steve Javi admitted they they take that into account and try not to call that second technical. And as the Celtics, like, what can you do? You don't want to let him get under your skin and retaliate. But at the same time, you need to get back in up, up in his face because then he feels like he has the upper edge on you and he has more free reign to do whatever he wants. And I I just don't understand why he continues to get this long leash. And you know what? I think it plays a big role in how the Warriors have succeeded in the past several years. Like this dynasty, one of the cornerstones of the dynasty is Draymond's intensity, but borderline, you know, he he toes that line so closely that that is the difference between winning and losing for a team like the Warriors. Um, And you can see, like, he even admitted game three, he didn't have the same intensity. He was in his own head. And that also sets the tone for the Warriors defensively, and, and they were not the same. So 
I think he, I still think he gets away with too much. And I hate how, you know, Warriors fans always come back and say, oh, the Celtics play physical. The Celtics play well. And they do. Smart flops. They play physical. But Draymond, this is it, it's always taking it to one extra level. Like even last night where he had Tatum on like that chokehold or kind of ripped his shoulder like from the it's block. So, yeah. It's just at this point, like it's sickening. It's sickening. And, and the only thing that gives me happiness is the fact that he's struggling everywhere else on the court. So that's all he, he has he in his toolbox. Horrible. I saw he was one of only two players in finals history to play 35 minutes, foul out, and have two points or fewer. So he's in he's in rarefied air with what he put up last night. For the for the Cole series, what is he? I mean, he's averaging he's seventh on their team in scoring. He's averaging five points, seven rebounds, five assists. So shooting twenty six percent from the field, zero percent from three, and fifty percent from the line. I mean that brings up a true shooting percentage of 32%. So <laughs> it's really disastrous. I think his his um, his playbook is so well scripted because once he gets that first tech, it's like having immunity. It's yeah. like the guy is drinking from this, you know, the elixir of life from the <laughs> sorcerer's stone. Like none of that shit matters anymore because they'll never throw him out. He pretty much said it. Yeah, he, he said it. He did say, he's like, I get officiated like this. I deserve this. It's like, bro, how the fuck does that make any sense? You deserve to just cross the lines over and over again without any retribution. And yeah, we can always go back to the game seven or game five suspension, which they did retroactively, right? Like they didn't do it in the moment. They gave him the flagrant. Uh, after them. Yeah, they didn't suspend him. Use the right words. They gave him, a, they upgraded a flagrant foul, which yes. gave him one extra point which put him over the limit, which got him suspended. They didn't okay. go and suspend okay. him okay. retroactively. I No, I said they changed the foul. They gave, No, I said they gave him the flagrant retroactively. You first said they suspended him retroactively by I giving know. him the flagrant. They, I, no, I want to correct that because so many people still think they misremember the whole situation and think that the league well, just tossed him out of the, the like the series for because LeBron well, asked them to. they heard this, I'm sure the world will, will have that corrected. But I, for the point being, because of that, he's always going to be like, no, how can you say that I'm just getting a free pass? It costs us a title, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, like, if you watch the Warriors as much as we've all watched the Warriors, because they've been on our televisions literally for, like, nine years, almost every night, he is nonstop. And, like, there are certain guys who are nonstop, like Luka or, like, you know, even Tatum, whines yeah. a lot frankly but that's whining it's kind of like putting your hands up the act you know the face of disgust whatever draymond is going nuts like it is mouthpiece out yelling hollering fist you know chest bumping doing all sorts of random ass shit so the fact that in one instance one time major instance of course but one instance maybe the his behavior finally caught up to him does not make up for the fact that every other time in his career, he just does whatever he wants and there's nothing that comes with it. And I get it. You have to act like that to fire your team up. You're the spiritual leader. Great. That's not the league's problem. That shouldn't be the other team's problem. That shouldn't be the ref's problem that this is how you have to act to get people fired up. There are clear rules of, of how of engagement and of what is allowed and what's not allowed and what is a tech and what's not a tech. And I understand giving stars some extra rope. I understand it's the finals. You don't want to throw anyone out unnecessarily. But, like, you also don't want to have people just blatantly take advantage of that circumstance, which is what he's been doing his entire career. Um, 
And and you know what the crazy thing is? The league bent the rules in favor of him. What I mean by that is they increased the number of points you're allowed before you get suspended. Okay? After the whole 2016 playoffs. Now, when they make a rule change like that, you think, oh, maybe there were plenty of instances where players got close to the limit. The league doesn't want everyone getting suspended, so they changed it. No, Draymond is the only one who's ever towed that line. And they upped it. Like, they're only accommodating his behavior by doing that. And my biggest problem with the whole Draymond thing is, is just it's the uppityness of the Warriors, right? The, the, the way Steve Kerr talked about the code and Clay Thompson talks about the code when, you know, with um, Gary Payton getting injured. Now, I have no problem with them defending their guy. No problem with any of that. But you can't talk about a code when your own player is the dirtiest player in the league and clearly multiple times has tactics that are meant to just injure, rile up, do all kinds of things to the opposing team. And I hate that hypocrisy. Like, it's totally hypocritical. And then calling out the Boston fans, which, by the way, I'll never in my life defend Boston fans, (laughs) except for this one instance. But, like, calling them out and then being like, yeah, I'm going to curse in front of my children, and don't worry, it's not the same thing. Or, you know, there's I'm sure there's absolutely no one that's ever cursed at anybody at Chase Center, right, or Oracle Arena. Like, let's be real. Like, there are whole groups of thousands upon thousands of fans that were chanting, fuck Trey Young in Madison Square Garden, and everybody loved that. Like, everybody was like, oh, villain back in New York, blah, blah, blah. Nobody talked about the children there. The fact that what it's like being directed at him more, more specifically, like how is that any different than the whole damn stadium chanting against one player? So this is the stuff that like, I'm just tired of and where I've, you know, planted my flag, uh, planted my flag of allegiance with the Celtics, which is something I never thought I'd do in my whole entire life. But here we are because primarily of Draymond and the rest of this this sideshow. I, I don't want. I don't want to deal with it. I want to get rid of this dynasty. I want this to be over. I'm hoping if they win, you know, if Boston wins, we'll never see the Warriors in the finals again. Yeah, I. It, it is a shame that you know we opened this pod talking about how great of a series it is, but a lot of it is getting clouded. The good play is getting clouded by the narratives around the fans, the crowd, the complaining from Draymond, the complaining from Clay. None of it's really coming from the Celtics camp. Um, you know, I, I know Jalen had some comments about. Draymond, but still pretty muted. I thought if yeah, any I mean, of the Celtics... likable group. Like, yeah. they're pretty quiet. Tatum doesn't really say much except finding new ways to, like, <laughs> show his <laughs> show his obsession and adulation for Kobe Bryant. But, like, like his whole... He's not even... He doesn't even know when media sessions are. He's just like, was Kobe holding the ball like this <laughs> in this picture? Was he, like, on the right-hand side? Like, how do I emulate that best? Um, uh, you know, but Al Horford has never spoken, and then, like, they're not coming to, like, Rob Williams for quotes, right? It's really just Jalen Brown and J- Marcus Smart, who Marcus Smart, for all his on-court antics and flopping, he doesn't, he doesn't talk really much. talk no. that much either. So it's a it's a much more likable crew. But to your point, and I, I do want to talk about this for a second, like, part of what's made this a good series from the Warriors' standpoint is Steph has just been outrageous. Like, Last night was his best game, so it's a shame for Warriors fans that they, you know, lost a game where he played that good. But, I mean, he's in year 13. Uh, He's 33. He's going to be 34 next season. You start to think about, like, after the two MVPs, then they get Durant. He had two titles out of three seasons. Then he breaks his hand. 
but then comes back, wins the scoring title last year. I don't, I, people might forget, wins the scoring title despite them not making the playoffs. Now he finally has a down season, but oh, by the way, they're in the finals. When is this guy going to slow down? Like the way he keeps his body, the way his shooting should really not have any reason to fall off. Like I can't even understand what how to project his career because I'm in awe of just his skill. It is not anything close to anyone else in the NBA. It really isn't. Um, the constant fear, the constant pressure, you know, the fact that if you make a split second mistake, he will burn you. Like there's no one like that in the league. And I, I look at it and like, he's changed basketball and the way it's played and like bringing things out to the three point line. But Nobody could do what he did. It's almost like the way Jordan changed basketball, but nobody can really score in the isolation in the mid mid range the way he could either. So that's the um, that's the crazy thing when I watch him. I'm truly just like dumbfounded sometimes. It, it is incredible, man. I just watching that fear. If you're rooting for the opposite team, that fear you have every time a shot leaves his hands. I've never experienced that with any player. Kobe yeah. never instilled that fear in me. Um, Jordan didn't even instill that fear in me. I'm not saying he's better than Jordan, but what I mean is like that that paranoia that oh crap, Steph got an inch of space. It doesn't matter if he's how five feet not, behind the three yeah, point line. How did it's you like, not track him over here? Like he's over there, he's wide open. And you're just like, God damn it, we're going the other way with the made basket. And, and it's just a math problem, right? He only needs two threes in a row for a six point. That's a you know three mid range shots from a Jordan or a Kobe, for example. He only needs Wait, two of that, those run to that go in. Me again? Huh? I'm trying to, can you run that math? <laughs> the two threes versus the three twos. <laughs> trying to piece that one together. Yeah, yeah I know. No, it's it's a little tough. Um, so, I, I, I look, immense credit. And I think what isn't talked about, or it is being talked about enough, but look, his usage rate this finals, uh, he posted the game high usage rate, third game in a row. He's really the only offensive engine they have. Clay came alive last game, but, you know, Wiggins has been solid, but Wiggins has a ceiling to all of his scoring. Like he's never yep. going to top like 22, 23. Yeah. Um, and so. And Wiggins is struggling to shoot. He's only 31% from three after being oh, I think, yeah. near 40% during the regular season. So they're not even getting the space that he normally provides. So, so Steph's been incredible. Um, you know, the only knock on him you could give him is maybe the fourth quarter has not been there, but at the same time, he's also tired and ragged. So, but to your question of how long, can this go on? I I don't think it's talked about enough about the longevity he can. I mean, everyone talks about LeBron and his how the way he takes care of his body. You're right, man. Shooters, the shooting age as well. That's why Ray Allen played until, you know, late in his career. Reggie Miller, that doesn't change. Yeah. What's going to affect him is the freeing up and running around the amount of time, like just energy he exerts running around a court after a certain point you're not going to be able to do that but the shooting is going to be there and that's always going to keep him lethal and the thing is he's bigger than guys like Damian Lillard Chris Paul Trey Young um you know some of these smaller point guards that you could say okay maybe they're going to get beaten up over time Steph's been beaten up a good amount in his career but I think where this bulk that he's added really changes like his trajectory because he can come off screens and shoot till the you know sun comes out, right? Like he's going to be able to do that his entire life, but the size allows him to not necessarily get punished physically in the same way even he was early in his career. And so that's what I think that's really interesting. Like we know he struggled a bit uh, from three this year. It was his first season in his career under forty percent. He shot thirty eight percent, and it was his lowest field goal percentage as well. So 
you look at it and you're like, okay, is there a sign of decline? But then in the playoffs, I mean, the finals, he's shooting 49% from three on over 12 attempts a game. And so as much as you want to write the song that this is somewhere ending, he comes back with like a tour de force performance throughout this entire playoffs. And I mean, there's no question if there is an MVP on the Warriors side, if they win, like, there's just no debate. Not only would the media give it to him, like he would be the only no. candidate that they should ever consider. So if he's playing at a finals MVP level still, yeah, I think the LeBron comparisons are quite interesting because they're totally different bodies, but they take care of their bodies in a similar type of way. And they both, I mean, LeBron is the type where you would have said maybe his game wouldn't have aged well, but he's just a cyborg from another yeah. planet. So it was able to, to work. Steph is actually going to age in theory in a way that actually makes a lot of sense. And so maybe he's not the 30 points per game devastating scorer in five years, but why can't he be 20 points per game on like nine or 10, three point attempts, like, you know, just completely, you know, upending the court dynamics as the third guy on the team. I don't know. So let me ask you this, right? Um, Draymond's not getting any better. He's getting older and worse. Clay, he can recover, but I don't know if his lateral speed on defense is ever going to be the same as it was. Yeah. Now, I, I thought Bill Simmons brought up a good point on his pod recently, right? And Bill Simmons, you know, doesn't always have the most, the best takes, but he, he he's mentioned how, do you think the Warriors maybe regret not going more all in? Like they kind of underestimated how good this team could be, how far Steph yeah. could carry them. And they have assets, right? They've had, they've had Wiseman, they have a couple young guys. And it just feels like in this series, they're lacking the athleticism. They're lacking the size. They're missing maybe a piece or two to really push them over the top. And, you know, Bob Myers has talked about the fact that they're glad they didn't make any win now moves and are continuing to develop this team. And maybe it is the right move in the long term, but it also has you wondering they could have made some more of a win now move that would have really made them the clear favorite in the the finals. Do you do you think they regret that at all? I I thought that was an interesting point that he made, and really he was talking about moves on the fringes, right? He wasn't even talking about including Andrew Wiggins. He was talking like Larry Nance, Josh Richardson, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, those particular players, obviously, we'd have to look through and who, but like Wiseman makes good amount of money as the number two pick in a high elevation, you know, draft uh, rookie salary. So he makes almost 10 on his own. You add in a couple of those guys, you can easily get to 20 million without even touching your core of Clay, Wiggins, Dre, and Steph. I don't blame them because... Their whole philosophy was we want old and new. We want to build a transi transition plan. We absolutely do not want to be the Lakers after the 2010 season where they, they, they went all in, got two titles to their credit with Pau Gasol, Bynum, Odom, Kobe, etc. Then it all fell apart and it was 10 years until they were relevant again. And that was kind of just through a stroke of luck that LeBron decided he wanted to play there. Otherwise, who knows how much longer that was going to go, right? I don't blame them because they got to the damn finals. And at that point, it becomes very much a two things go this way, suddenly we're the champions. Or two things go that way, maybe they're champions. And so nothing that you do with the Wiseman contract and with these other guys would have guaranteed they beat the Celtics. That much is clear, right? Like, 
I don't think there was a player out there unless they it was like a Wiggins plus all these guys for a Beal level player or something to that extent that really would have put them in like the clear driver's seat. And so I don't fault them because it's like to me that's playing Monday morning quarterback in a way that's yeah. like they still got to the finals. And they're by the way, they're not out of this series. They could easily win it. Mm-hmm. And nonetheless, he's protected them against having a Lakers type implosion to some degree. And so, you know, I look at it like if they don't win the title, yes, they'll regret it because they may not get back and Steph doesn't get his fourth and blah, blah, blah. But it's hard to say a season that ended this way would be deemed a failure or would have been deemed like, hey, we should have done something differently. Yeah, you're right about that. Like the finals at the end of the day could come down to a couple of bounces, a couple of games that could have swung their way. And you can't use the result as a the justification that it was a failure. And they maintain more flexibility moving forward. Now, granted, the flexibility starts to change a little when you have to make decisions around Wiggins and Poole. But right now, it's not like they they still have these assets. They can still continue to develop Kuminga Moody or, you know, cash them in for some someone else, right? Yeah. Um, depending on how you can make the contracts work. But the other thing I should add, though, is that by the time the trade deadline rolled around, they were only about four to five weeks or maybe six weeks back of uh, into the Clay comeback, right? So they could have seen a different version of him by this point in the season, right? They he could have been 2019 Clay, 2018 yep. Clay. That's what we saw with Durant. And so Clay obviously had a longer layoff. He had one more serious injury. So it's unfair to expect him to be a star. But you know, 50 games into his season, they might have thought like this guy is gonna come back to being the number two on this team in a meaningful way. Uh, we've seen flashes of that. He had 33 in the game five against Dallas. So it's not like it's not there in him. It was more of how do we get the consistency out? So that's another thing that they had to operate with half knowledge at the time. Yep, that's true. That is a good point. Um, so well, any 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 thoughts on game four? Yeah, I think game four is going to be... Originally, I said I'm uh, that I thought that Golden State was going to win this one. So... I thought Boston was going to win game three. Golden State was going to win game four. I think I'll stick to that. Both teams are excellent coming off losses. Uh, They do a really good job of strategizing, kind of developing what the counter schemes are going to be. I think, you know, the crowd is going to be even drunker somehow uh, than they were on Wednesday when you talk about a Friday night game in Boston. Uh, and, And I think it's going to go back to Oracle or to Chase 2 2. And the winner of that game will win the finals. That's what I'm going to go with. That's exactly what I was going to say, too. I actually picked Golden State to win game three. And then Boston win game four. Didn't happen that way. But I think if Golden State wins game four, I actually... And that's not a crazy take. If 2-2, you have home court. But I think they, they'll they take it in six. Um, not oh, even so you seven. think Golden State's going to just win out? Actually, maybe not. Maybe not. That means they have to win three in a row. <laughs> Yeah, I just think that if they win Game Four, I can see them winning at home, and then they're a team that can close you out in Game Six. So no, it's certainly listen, it's certainly possible. They were three in a row versus two one versus Cleveland. They won three straight in 2015. They also were down two one versus Memphis in that same season and won three straight. Uh, We've seen this team do this. They were down, I think, two one versus Houston in 2019 and won three straight. And then three one versus OKC. Yep. So we've seen them go on these runs. This is not the same roster by any means, but they still have the same head of the snake and Steph Curry. I do think that Boston is too good defensively to lose three games in a row, though. Yeah, that gives you just, less margin of... Yeah, they just won't... 
and they're too resilient. They're just not going to get blown out and they're not going to be put away and, and like feel despondent. The, the, the more interesting thing is I think Boston has a real shot to go up three, one here. Um, we still haven't gotten the Jason Tatum game. Like I'm still waiting for game six versus Milwaukee, Jason Tatum, where he puts up 46 points on the road, goes toe to toe with Giannis and keeps them alive. Um, Looking back, if Boston wins the title, that game will be the reason why it wasn't Milwaukee winning the title. Yeah. And it's a crazy thing to think about, but that's the reality. And so I'm waiting for that version. It's in there. Clearly, we've seen it on multiple instances throughout the playoffs, but I want to see him take over in a big-time way. And maybe that comes Friday, right? There's no better time. If you go up 3-1, you're – probably winning the championship. And I think he knows that. So maybe we go the other way and say, Hey, there's going to be a big time performance from, from a first team all NBA guy. That's true. Like we can't write him off this early. Like he's, you know, he's had a solid series and then this could be the game where he puts it all together. But I, I just knowing these teams, the, the, the adjustments, all that Draymond's going to come out ready to just maul someone. Yeah. the intensity is going to be different from Golden State. And this is what always happens. Losing team is more desperate. So Yeah, it's a must win. And this is no uh, young team. They know how to win on the road. Yep. Let me ask you one thing. Since I don't remember there being a lot of discourse around finals MVP the way there is now, do you think that's primarily because Steph's never won one? I think a lot of it has to do with that. Because if you go through the history of the league, every time a team has won – their best player almost universally has won one, has won, or has won one in the, at some point in his career. So, case in point, Tim Duncan only won two of the four Tony that they won. won. Sorry, three of the yeah. Tony Parker won one. Kawhi Leonard won one. I think he won three of the five. Right. Kobe Bryant has won two of the five, but like he got his two. Right. It's like twenty eleven Dirk. There was no question he was going to win it, right? Or 2019 Toronto, it was going to be Kawhi. 2020 Giannis. So I'm just wondering, or 21 Giannis, I should say. I'm just wondering if a lot of this is driven by the fact that the best player in the Warriors for the last nine years has three titles and no finals MVPs. 100%. That's why people talk about finals MVPs so much. Otherwise, Isn't I mean, it weird? It is weird. But, uh, you know, I've, I used to make fun of about Steph or make fun of stuff for this before, but at the end of the day, he's that he should have won it at some point. He uh, should have won 2015. He was not the best player in 17 or 18. He, he should have won 15. in 2015 if you were going to give it to a warrior. I think it should have been LeBron, but... I would only give it to LeBron if he had gotten them to seven. seven. You can't lose in six and be as good as he was. He also shot under 40%. You can't go to six and get finals MVP. It had to go to seven. And even then, like I'm a little bit in, not in favor of giving it to any team. Cause if it's most valuable, I maybe mean, it was most outstanding. We could, we could redefine or rename the award. Then we're talking about something different, but the bigger question, bigger point I want to make is it is dumb that we have a trophy just for the finals. Hockey does this, right? They have a trophy for the entirety of the playoffs. And sure, that but we makes do, a lot more sense to me. The NFL also does this, Super Bowl MVP, and it's sometimes a random player who had no 
But it's worth less in the NFL for that exact reason, right? Like Malcolm Smith has one, like Dexter Jackson Jackson, has one, and like, like you know, these random dudes. Like, who's the guy that? um, How was it? Like Dion Branch has one, and like you know, Julian Edelman has one, doesn't he? Yeah, and so it's kind of yeah. So it's kind of like all right, well, whatever. Like I don't think it's, it's that important. But the NBA, the awards, the resume matter a lot more, and so. I think we should be more representative of what actually matters, which is the entirety of the playoffs. And that sucks for Steph because he's had some dominant postseason runs, and then the finals he underwhelms a little bit, and then that's why. He... Yeah. Well, I'm actually curious. Like, I'm just looking at it. Like in 2000, okay, so 2017, he had a real shot at it. 28, seven and six on 48, 42, 90 shooting. But Durant was. Let insane. me see what Durant did in that. It was playoffs. like thirty-five. That was in the finals, but let me just see what he did in the playoffs. Uh, twenty-nine, eight, twenty-nine, eight, and four on fifty-six, forty-four, eighty-nine. Oh my god! Okay, that was stupid. That, <laughs> was those years should be stricken not... for the those two shoots. Those seasons should be stricken for the record. Dude, go back. I I, I just. I did this recently. Go back and watch highlights from the 2017 finals. It's comical. Like, it's literally comical how there's just like, he's just wide open or running to the rim wide open because this they sent a double at Steph. It's, it's absolutely chaos. It's like, I don't understand how that team could ever even, you know, the fact that the Rockets took Everyone him to seven. Everyone was just like flailing around. No, the Rockets took him to seven the following year. Oh, sorry. It was the following year. Yeah. The 2017 Warriors, which we both I think agree is the best team of all time, they went 16 and one. Oh yeah, and their and only loss their only loss was uh, against the game four against the Cavs, Cavs when, when they, they scored 89 in the first half, and they were up three zero. They were up 89 in the first half, and then Golden State still shrunk the lead down to like eight points in the fourth quarter or third quarter. It's like, and the Cavs ended up winning, <laughs> but it's that's what it takes. I'll never forget. We were graduating booth. I remember because that was the first year we got to see the Durant. And so we were in the finals Lake week watching and it was game one. I was like, Oh wow. LeBron Durant. I was like, okay, this one's done. <laughs> I think it was like 30 points blowout in game one. Yeah. Or something to that effect. So, um, all right. So bouncing around the league, I guess quickly there's, there's what other, what other topics are, are kind of grabbing your attention as we get towards the draft, get towards free agency. Uh, well, I mean, Utah, right. I think we got to start there. Um, the first domino finally fell Quinn Snyder resigning. Now I never know what to make of these resignations, right? Is it he chose to resign or is it the team felt like he served them for so long? They didn't want to outright fire him. So it's like a mutual agreement. But well, then they would have said that. I don't know. Like, what, yeah, I, so I think in this instance, it was just him being like, I don't want to do this anymore. Which he's is actually telling. Still under, he's actually, it is very telling. He's still under contract. He can't go coach somewhere next year unless the Jazz let him out of their deal, which I don't know why they would have any incentive to do. Um, and I think, you know, Rick Carlisle did this last year in Indiana. and in, Sorry, in Dallas before he took the Indiana job. The question is, you know, contractually, are they going to pay him? They probably will. He's been there for so long. He's done, done such a good job. It was not a firing. They did not have plans to get rid of him by what I've heard. And and so that raises even more questions around what is going on with the Jazz. We already know 
there's been a lot of talk around are they going to keep Mitchell, Gobert? You know, they're going to have to give up one of those. A lot of trade rumors have been swirling around about Gobert to the Bulls and you know what kind of packages could could they possibly uh, do? And so to me, I'm really curious if they how competitive they try to stay. Right? They're, are they going to keep Mitchell, ship out Gobert, try to to get you know retool the roster to keep them competitive? Um, or do they do a little soft, not rebuild, but they've got a lot of aging players. I mean, I, they're going to still have to pay Conley. They're not a young team by any means. No. And so this could, and Danny Ainge has always been bold. And so there could be wholesale changes coming too, um, which I'm hoping for because it's one potential playoff spot that opens up for Sacramento maybe. <laughs> Who knows? So the the couple of trades that I've seen today, because there's a lot of Gobert trades out there to Dallas, to Atlanta, Toronto, et cetera. The one that I saw, or the two trades I saw, were both to Chicago. And one was Vucevic, Lonzo Ball, two firsts. One was Vucevic, you know, two firsts, maybe a swap, whatever. And then one was Vucevic and Patrick Williams and maybe a pick. Chicago I'm hangs not up. Sh- oh, you think Chicago hands up? Well, Given the Pat Williams a pick, Vooch, maybe. The first one you said, there's no way. I mean, he would solve their number one problem, which is their defense was absolutely atrocious last year. I agree. And then you keep Levine. You keep Levine and DeRozan, so they're still your two guys up top. You have Caruso. Let's say they do the ball one. You have Caruso, Levine, Pet Pewell, Gobert, DeRozan. It's not bad. It's not bad. I think they still like the ball too much to give them up. Well, ball's always hurt. Um, yeah, but I mean... But I do think Mike Conley has to be shopped around. He was horrendous last year. I mean, what value does he have? He has that contract. Vet locker room presence. Or maybe Miami can swap him for Lowry and try the next aging point guard out. Um, And then you have Bogdanovich. Like you said, like, I think Bogdanovich could be a really nice piece for someone, depending on kind of who's out there to fill that role. What if you sent Bogdanovich to the Grizzlies for like Dylan Brooks and a pick? Right, something like that, where you still get back a good defender, guy who can make shots, a little bit of a pest, but someone who was kind of inefficient or you know, in he wasn't very good in the playoffs, put it that way. Yeah, but he doesn't make you that much worse than Barkanovich would. So something like that, I think, is maybe what they try to do, like the soft rebuild, like you said. But the real shoot to drop is what Mitchell wants to do. Uh, I don't think they have any intention of trading him if he doesn't want to be out. But if he does, and they end up trading him, are they going to build around Gobert? No, if, if they trade Mitchell, I think they're both gone, and the whole thing comes down. Yeah, exactly. But, so I was I was listening like, to, yeah. but Tim McMahon had a good point, which is they're hosting the All-Star game next year. Uh, These two made the All-Star team last two years. Do you think they really want to go into next season with, like, random player X and just draft out lottery odds. Like that's not a way to sell like the whole NBA coming to your town. Yeah. But you can't make, I mean, yes, that matters, but you can't make these franchise decisions based on the fact that the all-star game is coming to do. They absolutely do stuff like that. They no. have to, they think about it. I don't think Danny Ainge, I think Danny Ainge is savvy enough that he's not going to like, while that matters, he's well, going to be thinking about much, the bigger yeah. picture. I mean, it depends how much uh, autonomy he has versus what Ryan Smith wants to do. The owner. True. <coughs> yeah, so um, I mean, that, that's the biggest one to me. I, I think that's the one team in crisis mode, uh, and I'm interested to see what happens. 
Are the Lakers in crisis mode? I mean, the Lakers are always in crisis mode. I mean, they've been this entire yeah. offseason. You know what I mean? It's just like I'm tired of hearing about what they're going to do. Like the uh, second at this point, after the Lakers parade takes place, following a title, they're in crisis mode again immediately. <laughs> Uh, like Darvin Ham in his press conference with Westbrook standing there, right? Just Westbrook giving him dagger eyes. I thought that was hilarious. Just him like literally watching the entire thing, not even oh, blinking. Were you, do you think he was there to intimidate him? I thought he was there to support him. Am I just too naive? I'm like, oh, no, I, I I think I think part of it was intimidation. I think it's like, yo, I'm here. You know, watch what you say. And Darvin Ham had to play the whole, he's amazing. You know, he's a... Great player. We're going to expect to see him next year. Oh, man. I'm such a – I'm too too much of a sweetheart. Like, I honestly was thinking of it like – like, I couldn't understand why it was a controversy that he was there. I thought that was a good sign of a good teammate. But really what you're saying and maybe what the reality was is that he was there to be like, yo, this is my show. Don't come up with your – come in here with your ideas. Yeah, don't try to twist the narrative. And if he's there, like, there's no – Darvin Ham's not even going to say, we'll see what the roster looks like. I'll make those decisions. He straight mm-hmm. up says, Ross is awesome. Uh, got it. Okay. So, but that I don't makes know. The, a lot La- more sense. the Lakers, they've got no – I think at this point they realize there's no move for them to make with Russ. And so they just got to make moves on the fringes, and that's not going to – I don't know what that's going to do. So to me, they're not that okay. interesting. I mean, Russ for Wall is still out there if anybody wants it. Now, that's not going to really move the needle. Wall is probably going to get bought out anyway, so why would you even try to trade? make that trade? Well, um, just so you can get Russ up. off your team. What about the Nets? Kyrie? Is he stay? I think he stays. Would it be absolute insanity for Kyrie to be traded for James Harden? So now you have Harden. You put Harden on the in Nets. Brooklyn. Yeah. It won't happen. They burn Back bridges to at Brooklyn. this point. They burn bridges at this point. But Kyrie if on the Durant, Sixers would be perfect. Yeah, he would be really good if like, and when he played. Forget play, any yeah. playmaking. They just they're just they've him got and Maxi would be deadly. Yeah. You would have to get get something back if you were if you were uh Brooklyn besides Harden. Like oh, 100%. Kyrie's, Kyrie doesn't have a lot of trade value in the league right now, but he has more than Harden does. 100%. Harden's going to have to get paid. That's the biggest problem. Well, they both will be though, right? They're both going to be on similar contracts. Yeah, but Harden's older. You see what I'm saying? So like Kyrie you can kind of stomach it a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, well, Kyrie might not be older, but he's also less interested in showing up every night. So I don't know where you factor that in. Um, I mean, you can't it, say hard. Yeah. yeah. Durant being tied to this guy, like he made his own bed. He's got to sleep in it. But my God, I'm not saying he should have stayed in, in Golden State. He wasn't getting satisfaction there. And like, clearly, like those titles were not being counted really the way others were. I mean, that's the reality. I don't particularly think that's, you know, fair, but whatever anybody like I couldn't understand why he wouldn't go to the Clippers because Kawhi asked him to come to the Clippers he was like yeah basically have a gap year because he had just torn his Achilles right imagine healthy Kawhi and healthy uh KD that would be that would be insane that though I guess the very next year Kawhi tore his ACL so maybe they're forever cursed yeah but it's like you don't you know those things change obviously yeah yeah um I Look, I don't know if it's so bad to pair up with Kyrie because, look, Kyrie is the second best player 
on the Cavs, won a title, almost won another one in 2015 if maybe he was healthy. So but he also I, threatened to get knee surgery if they didn't trade him. So he's he's a loose cannon, not. but the talent is there. Is my point, right? So you take the bet on the talent. Well, make, at, make no mistake, they were going to win the title last year if if he didn't roll his ankle, and Harden's hamstring didn't explode. And that's the thing. So I don't even know if you can blame Durant because at the end of the the day they were close enough they could have won last year. His yeah, maybe that's foot the case. just a couple inches. Makes yeah, the difference between them right. winning and losing that series. <clears throat> yeah, you're right. But what about Kings, Blazers, maybe Pistons? What are you thinking about this like win now? Like how short sighted is this that these teams that are terrible and picking in the top seven or eight are like, you know what we need is a win now player. Well, I don't know what the hell Portland expects. They're they're trying to trade seven for a win now player. I don't know what that gets you. We, I mean, their the, roster is a joke. No win now player short of like freaking Jimmy Butler is going to help anything over there. And, and exactly. Like they need more help than just one guy that seven pick is going to convert to. So I don't know what their plan is. I think the Kings, I don't think they're going to trade for a win now player. I'm 100% confident they are going to. The only, if they trade back, it'll be with a team like the Pistons who will give up Jeremy Grant as well. So it's like you move back, you get an, a good player. I really think they're going to call Sam Presti, try to go up to number two, which has been reported, or take whoever's best at four. And I'm off the Shaden Sharp train. I think oh, last time we yeah. talked. You got me off too. I'm back on Jaden Ivey. I'm not even excited about Ivey. He has so many flaws that worry me. Like, dude, what player in the NBA like enters the league who can't shoot, who has no mid-range game, who can't pass, and just as great athleticism transition. Yeah, he's like Russell Westbrook, but w- what is Russell Westbrook doing in 2022? That's my concern. I don't care how athletic he is, how good is he in transition. If you're a two guard and you can't shoot, that's worse. Can he play the point? He's terrible at passing. He averaged like three assists. Yeah, it's not ideal. So then who's the... So Okay, to your point, then why would... Why would, when there's a clear top three, why would Oklahoma City want to trade out of that? You think they're still in asset ac- <laughs> accumulation mode and they're just too obsessed with that they can't even see the light outside of it? I don't think they would because at this point, like they're trying to swing for a, a star and the second play- pick is the best place to swing for that. Why would they trade down to four? It doesn't make any sense. But Chet I also don't. Sam Presti. For them to take. But Sam Presti also falls in love with a falls in love with this very specific player. He doesn't care what your board looks like. Yeah, and so Giddy was not uh, on the number six in the draft boards for most people last year. Yeah, and so maybe he thinks Ivy's the best player, right? Maybe he, and then he either takes Ivy at two or he trades down with the Kings knowing that the Kings really want Chet or whoever. So I'm interested. I, I just think that um, the hope for me is Paolo drops he's the only guy who's capable of dropping down to four he's even that won't happen because houston's gonna get a big they're not gonna... if you get paolo you better start popping champagne i'm telling you that right now well the fit with i mean i'm gonna take him regardless of fit but my point is the fit with sabonis is not it's not good because he can't shoot either they're actually both the same in that they can look like they can shoot but neither can actually shoot Exactly. So he's, but like, I would still pop champagne because he's the talent you get at four. That's amazing. 
Yeah, he's going to be big time. I mean, I might be on an island in terms of, I called him the best player in this draft. I think. I mean, the ringer has him as the best prospect. Do, do they? Yeah, he's number one in the oh, draft. I thought guide. they had Jabari Smith. No. Everybody's saying Jabari Chat one, two. Most people do, but I'm saying the ringer has Paolo. KOC, I Interesting. think, has him as number one. Shit, I don't want to align with KOC. He also had Killian Hayes number one, so I'm not sure. KOC's been saying some dumb stuff lately. Like uh, his He's... whole thing about Donovan Mitchell, like for Drew Holiday. That was, was like, oh, the... Bill Simmons being just Bill no, Simmons. Bill Simmons, Bill Simmons being... No, Bill Simmons suggested it, but KOC was like, yeah, the Bucks do that. I was like, what world will the Bucks do that? Oh, interesting. I do think the Bucks do that. They get a guy like nine years younger. You're right, but but no defense. Like I, I feel like, like Donovan Mitchell is being trashed to a level that's beyond like his actual. I mean, I know he's like they can cover up for that. A guard defender is not that big of a deal. It's not when you have rim protection that you can funnel players yeah, into. Yeah, you have you heard of Giannis Antetokounmpo? Have you heard oh, yeah, of Brook Lopez? Yeah, those, guys right. for, those guys play for those guys play for Portland. Okay, maybe it's not that bad. I don't know why. I just think that. I mean, they might not do it because Drew is like a spiritual leader for them and he's like the kind of part of their identity. They wouldn't do it for that reason. But in a vacuum, if there's personalities were not included, I definitely think that they would do that. But I don't Well, know, yeah, you get I'm, way younger for sure. Way younger. You get like a scorer, an isolation scorer who's elite at, uh, you know, on ball shot creation, one of the biggest flaws for the Bucks. And you don't have to rely so much on Chris Middleton doing that, who's kind of tier two at that anyway. It's right, maybe, maybe I'm changing opinion. my mind. But. but KSC does say dumb things. He'll be like, why can't Russell Westbrook just be an off-ball cutter? He'd be so good. Oh, yeah. He's like, and it's like, well, dude, he played his whole 14-year career not doing that. He's like, yeah, but he could just learn it. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I could learn it now and enter the NBA too if I wanted to, I guess. <laughs> like, if we're just making shit up. Like, he's not going to suddenly do that after 14 years of doing it another way. Yeah. He just – he lives in some to- – Type of like ether world that we don't have. He's just too optimistic. Yeah, I was going to say it's just about positivity and sunshine out there. But (laughs) hey, more credit to him. Um, All right. Anything else to note? Uh, What what do you think is going to happen with John Wall? Um, John Wall's going to get the House of Highlights. They post that little video of like, oh, do you remember how good John Wall was? Are you sleeping on John Wall? Yeah, they talk about John Wall like he played in the era of Tiny Archibald. Um, he is going to get bought out. The guy is somehow working out every day, but continually getting a bigger belly every time he takes his shirt off and more tattoos. I don't know what's going on with him. I think my prediction is he gets bought out after the draft because no trade materializes, and then he signs. So he's owed $47 million, nope. which is insanity. But I think he's going to get bought out for about $35 million with the idea that he's going to sign an MLE with someone hmm. to recoup you know, the rest of that lost wages. So I think he's going to sign either with Miami or the Clippers. Here's my dream. You want me to tell you my dream? What? The Nets trade Kyrie Irving to L.A. for Anthony Davis and you know whatever else. Lakers have to move Russ in this scenario as well, so they find a trade partner. They trade him. They trade him to Charlotte for Gordon Hayward, and then John Wall is a free agent after buyout signs with the Nets. Kyrie, uh, AD, KD, 
John Wall win the title next year. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that team well AD and John Wall won't even be on the floor. They'll be sitting yeah, in like, street clothes. They'd have to find their own Matthew Delavadova because while those two dudes are like nowhere to be seen in the finals. Oh yeah. That would oh man. <laughs> that that's such a weird that'd be an interesting team. What about the Kyrie for AD piece? Does that interest you if you're the Lakers or no? Why? What are you? Where are you getting with just LeBron and Kyrie? Like, I think at this point, didn't you, you just tell to... me how that won a title? Yeah, but that was like prime LeBron, not this version of LeBron who you know is not interested in defense for 48 minutes. I think Kyrie and LeBron would be a movie, though. I, I think the way you have to, if you're the Lakers, you have to think about it this way: Anthony Davis, so far in his tenure on the Lakers, he peaked. And now he's hit a low the last couple of years in terms of staying healthy, you know, and even the on-court product. I think he can only go up. Like, he's young enough that he's not, like, crippled for the rest. You know, it's not like his, his career is done. So why are you selling low on AD, right? They should just ride him out, and he's only going to get better from here. So why It would trade be very dumb to trade AD. It would be dumb, and, like, he should get better, and, like, all the people calling for him as like a superstar, like I get it. He's a disappointment for what his capability is. But if you just go back and look at the 2020 season, even pre-bubble, like we know the bubble is a bit fraudulent for everyone, but even pre-bubble, he was dominant that year defensively. He wasn't shooting the way he shot in the bubble. He really has never shot like that ever again before or after, but everything else about his game looked like almost MVP level that season. You just got to hope that with, a ton of time to rest the full off season. He gets back to that version. Exactly. And, and for, for the record, don't loop me in with your, Oh, we all say it's fraudulent because in my books, LeBron is one of the two hardest championships in NBA history, the bubble and 2016. So by the way, I pulled up the, uh, I'm going to ignore that comment, but I pulled up the uh, ringer NBA draft guide and Paolo is number one, but there's like player comps next to these people. I thought Chris Weber. the top three was going to be tight, but number one, Paolo, it's Weber, but then it's Julius Randle. Julius Randle. <laughs> number two, Jabari Smith. Two-way, Richard Lewis, Taller, Harrison Barnes, and Michael Porter. <laughs> doesn't get you that excited. Matt Holmgren, Gen Z, Pau Gasol. What the fuck does that mean? But Rudy Gobert with perimeter skills. Um, that sounds actually enticing. You know what the best one is? So I'll give you Jaden Ivey, Donovan Mitchell, Jumbo, Darius Garland, and Victor Oladipo. Your boy, Shaden Sharp, has easily the, the most exciting comps. Paul George. Paul George, tall Bradley Beal, Jalen Green. That's the now, thing, man. That's so enticing. I'm back on the train. What's the next couple? Egan Murray is Pascal Siakam, Al Horford, TJ Warren. In what world are Pascal Siakam and Al Horford, Al Horford and then seven, Jalen Duran is Durant, DeAndre Jordan, Robert Williams, pass. <laughs> Eight, Jeremy So So Soyan, Sochan. Sochan, yeah. Wow. Ben Simmons, Draymond Green, Aaron Gordon. Oh god, in today's day and age, I don't know if I like those comps. Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. He's Devin Harris, Chris Middleton, Sean Livingston. These players don't play anything like one. They don't of them. yeah, like Sean Livingston and Chris Middleton are Ben Matherin, he's who I'm excited about. Jamal Crawford, like Karis LeVert, Prime, Victor Oladipo. So that's your top 10. Karis LeVert's actually so, kind of a good call for him. 
And 11 is AJ Green. AJ Griffin and 12 is Dyson Daniels. I know the Wizards really like Dyson I Daniels. I like Dyson. Everyone likes Dyson. He's going to go top 10. Guaranteed. Put right, it down. So we should bet that right now because if he's 12 on the big board here, then some of these other guys he, are falling. He measured 6'8 at the comp. He measured bigger than he was. Super high IQ. Um, obviously, he's been playing in the G League, right? So the talent is, you know, like some professional guys there. Uh, and he's just a smart player. He does. He doesn't have a fundamental flaw. He's not super athletic or great at shooting, but he's just high IQ. Can do it all. Fit anywhere. Four is play. too high for him, right? If the Kings took him at four, would you? That be would be pissed? irresponsible. That'd be irresponsible. Okay. It's tough though, because okay, let's say he's going to go six and seven, and then you'd feel good. If the Kings have no way to get to six, shouldn't they just take him? Yeah, if you if you really like a guy, you have to, you can't assume. And he even said unprompted that when they say like, "Where do you see yourself fitting?" He was like, "Uh," so he named one team, and then he said Sacramento's the next team. Um, he would fit there. I mean, there's a clear and, opening and sort of like need at the wing, right? And, and the Kings over-index on players who want to be there. They love that. So who knows? Maybe they'll take them for. Yeah, I mean, like the NFL, you can trade to pretty much whatever spot you want. You know, short of number one with the franchise QB, but any other spot is available. Like. The Vikings jumped up 20 spots from 30 to 12 to take, you know, sorry, the Lions from 32 to 12 to take Jamison Williams. So whatever. The NBA doesn't really work like that. Trades don't happen all that often, specifically not in the top 10. It's not super common. So that to me is what makes it tough because it's like, yeah, sure, he's not worth the number four pick, but I don't have a way to get to the pick I think he's worth it at if it's two, three spots later. So. You can't take the chance. In the NFL, it's fine, right? You you trade back, you miss out on maybe the defense alignment you really wanted. Big deal. NBA, if you if you like a prospect and you think you can get him at seven instead of four and you trade back, that's way too risky. Like Yeah, like the commanders needed a wide receiver, traded out of 11, two wide receivers were picked, and then they got the third guy. If that was the NBA, everyone would be like, what the hell did that team just do? They just yeah. needed the position and <laughs> exactly the third exactly. of the players. But like people are like, oh, what a great move! Added extra picks, blah blah blah. Um, so it's just a different team building approach. I just hope, and I don't know. Like, it's funny because Detroit Pistons fans and Kings fans have both proposed this trade. Pistons think they can trade straight up Jeremy Grant and some other filler for four. The Kings think we should also get five in return. So it's like they Detroit only moves up a spot, that's but a gives big, up Jeremy Grant. That's a big. That's a big caveat. But like then you don't have to pay him, right? We give him some shorter contracts. I don't know that you can get off your books. Jeremy Grant's not part of your future, and then you get four, and they get Jaden Ivy or someone that maybe they really like. Um, they would have to really like someone who the Kings or someone trading into the four spot is going to take. But right now, after the top three, it's so jumbled. Like I don't know, Ivy could slip to six or seven. Who knows? No, you no, no. I, I think Ivy's gotten know. so much hype. I'm the you only one down. He has like no discernible skills in the NBA. <laughs> Everyone's so hyped on him, like that. I think he's gonna go. He's not gonna slip past four. I think the Kings take him if he's available at four. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Like Keegan Murray's the only other option, and they're not. Uh, he doesn't excite me. Yeah, I love the draft. Two weeks from from yesterday, or two weeks from yeah Thursday. Sorry, shit. It's Audi. Friday in my time. I gotta go to bed. Yeah. You've kept me up too late talking talking finals, talking draft, all these things I love. 
Um, but all right, that's a wrap for us. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Hoops. Please follow us on all social media platforms. So we have game four Monday, game sorry, game four Friday, game five Monday, and then what is it? Wednesday or Thursday for game six? No, no, game five Monday, game six Thursday, game seven Sunday. Wow. Okay, so based on how the series goes, we may end up talking once it's all done or maybe previewing game seven. Wait, so, where are you going next week? No, I'm saying next week, if we record on Thursday, that might be after game six. No, we should do Wednesday after we'll five. Wednesday. Okay, yeah, we'll do it Wednesday after five. Then. So we'll know that there's games to come. Yeah, exactly. Or who knows, right. maybe Boston. Oh, yeah, yeah sorry. I guess, yeah, that's true. It's, they, it's could, possible. they could just put it away. That's right. Jay, the Jason Tatum game coming tomorrow night. <laughs> uh, all right, thanks, thanks for listening, everyone, and we will talk to you next week.